Okay, I am, I am now quoting myself, which is always a very appealing thing to do in front of people. Here we go. After a few years immersed in the science and experience of our most misunderstood emotion, I've discovered about myself what I've discovered about others. Regret makes me human. Regret makes me better. Regret gives me hope. This is the last paragraph of Daniel Pink's new book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, as read by Dan himself. And with it, I think we capture a lot of what is so intriguing about this book. The idea that regret is one of the most misunderstood emotions and that it makes us human, makes us better and should, if understood, give us all hope. Yeah, I love how Dan is applying these insights to himself. And yet, because regret is universal, the application of his solutions in the book are universal too. He says that if we can better understand regret and how to harness its power, we can improve our lives. And that is only one of the many takeaways that we had from this conversation. Indeed it is. And we will talk about that concept and those takeaways, both in the interview, but also in our grooving session at the end. And in case you were wondering, this is Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We explore human nature and behavior with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. Today's episode, as I'm hoping most of you have already surmised, is with best-selling author, now-turned-part-time researcher, Daniel Pink. Daniel H. Pink is the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers, When and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive and To Sell is Human. Dan's books have won multiple awards, have been translated into 42 languages, and have sold millions of copies around the world. I hope you get the idea that he's a pretty popular writer. He, he is a pretty popular writer, but in addition to that, he was also the host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior, Tim. That's pretty cool, right? Super cool. And it was on National Geographic and it aired in more than 100 countries. And before venturing out on his own 20 years ago, Dan worked in politics and in government, including serving as chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore from 95 to 1997. He's also, as he says, sometimes regrettably, a Yale Law School grad and has received honorary doctorates from Georgetown University, the Pratt Institute, the Ringling College of Art and Design, University of Indianapolis, and the Westfield State University. So what you're saying is he's a great author. And he's super smart. <laughs> I think that is the message. Yes. Yeah. Copy that. Okay. Kurt and I have followed Dan's writings for many, many years, and we have been enthusiastic supporters of many of his books. We found that his most recent book on regret was excellent, partially because he did a lot of qualitative and quantitative research to add to the literature, which is really cool. And he really mm -hmm. dug into it and he let the data speak for itself. Yeah, we are super impressed that this incredibly talented author is evolving into what we think is a world-class researcher. Yeah, now, he might not say that, right? Actually, yeah, he, he, might he does say that he isn't doing that, but that's okay. Listen to that in the interview, folks. But right now, let's let Dan tell his story. It's time for you to sit back and relax by balancing your glass of anticipated regret and enjoy our conversation with Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. I'm glad to be with you. We are always uh, super excited to have you here. And as always, we start with a speed round. So I get to start. So Dan, coffee mm. first thing in the morning um, or tea first thing in the morning? Easy, coffee. I don't drink tea. Coffee. Okay, all right. <laughs> tea is and for wimps. <laughs> tea is for wimps. Take that, Mary. Second part of that question, do you drink that right away? Or do you wait 60 or 90 minutes before you drink it? Depends on the day. Oh, so there are there are some mornings where you you do delay, you you, yeah. you wait a little bit? Yeah. Cool. Cool. We're, we're pulling that from when. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for remembering you, that, yeah. As you remember. Um, second, second question. We've heard you say that some of the best conversations that you've had with people were over food. Mm. So would you prefer to have dinner, a dinner conversation with your favorite athlete? your favorite musician, or your favorite scientist? That's a tough one. 
in an ideal world, I would invite all three. <laughs> oh, because I think I the, the the exchange of all those, and I and I and I love the way you pick those those particular professions because I think there's stuff to learn from all of them, and I think there'd be some really great cross pollination. Any any names come to mind? Just that this isn't part of the speed round, but just curious. On on, on uh, so any of them, on musician, athlete, or scientist. Uh, I would love to talk to LeBron. I think he's extraordinary. I think that he has a memory unlike any I've ever seen, and I want to know sort of how he how he does that. Uh, scientists, I mean, so ma- I mean, so many so many different scientists out there could could fit the bill on this one. Um, I actually might want to talk to somebody like a Brian Green who can maybe explain mm. to me like quantum physics and astronomy and all that sort of stuff that makes my head hurt. Um, and then, um, I, you know what, another athlete I think would be, uh, maybe, maybe Serena. Oh, um, mm. and, um, if I could invite the, so musician, that's an, that's a harder one. Um, that's a harder one. Um, you know what, maybe, um, this is going to sound strange, but maybe, maybe Emmylou Harris. Oh, I think that's a that's a great answer. Yeah, because because she she sort she she she's been around for a while and she's she's had a very sustained career and she transcends genres. So if you guys can work on those invites, um, just tell me the day. <laughs> we'll we'll get we'll get working on that. No problem. So, okay, third 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 question: Is it possible to compare Julius Caesar in the same sentence as Elmo? from Sesame Street. It's not only possible, it is it is essential to do that <laughs> in order to make one's case and, and, in a chapter in this new book. And how how exactly would, would an author go about taking Elmo and Julius Caesar and comparing them together? Cuz I at, at face value, they do not seem anything at all alike and yet yet you are able to do this masterfully. Except when we except when we listen to them, we realize that both are fond of talking to them of talking about themselves in the third person. Both when Julius Caesar wrote about his exploits as a warrior and also uh, Elmo when Elmo wrote about Elmo's uh, when, anytime Elmo talks about Elmo, Elmo uses Elmo. All right. All right. It is lovely. Okay, last speed round question. Are Americans more likely to floss or to experience regret? Tie. Oh, no, actually, no. Uh, actually, the, the Americans are slightly more likely to experience regret than they are to floss their teeth. <laughs> That's cool. And, it's, and not how, it's, not, it's not a tie. Yeah. And how do you know that? T- tell us about how you how I you know that because I conducted a very large survey, public opinion survey of 4,489 Americans, asking them an enti- a whole bunch of questions, including a question about regret that avoided using the word regret uh, by design. And I asked them, uh, you know, how often do you look back on your life in which you had done something differently? And we got something like 83% of people saying they did it occasionally, uh, which is actually more often than people floss their teeth. <laughs> now, I happen to I happen to both floss and re- I happen to both floss and regret proving what a versatile performer I am. <laughs> you know, one of the few, Truly. obviously, as we Truly. see it here. But that, that that's pretty amazing when you think about that. So so this is obviously from your new book, Regret, uh, The Power of Regret. Um, tell us a little bit about what was the catalyst for writing this book? Was it an article? Did you read a comment somewhere? Was it me, me search? What, where was the catalyst for, for starting this book? Well, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting point, Kurt, because, you know, like that, that old, that old line that all research is me search. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I there's, there's certainly an element of that here. Um, this is not a book I would have written. I don't think in my thirties, oh. uh, you know, I've been writing a book for 20 years, um, uh, it's a book that in, in, in a weird way felt kind of inevitable in my 50s uh, because I had some mileage on me and I had some room to look back. And I realized that I was looking back and, and had regrets. And the curious thing, you know, would, I mean, you guys interview people and, and you, you, you have a sense of, of that. You know, every once in a while you bring up a topic and, and people lean in. And when I started talking about regrets, my own regrets with people, I, sus- I was skittish. I thought they might recoil. But I found they really leaned in. They 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 were eager to hear, and and they were also eager to divulge their own. And and you know, as as interviewers, like whoa, there's something going on there. And so, actually, on, on this book, I was I was working on a, on a totally different book, and um and and because I started thinking about this and getting such an interesting reaction from people, I actually put aside that book for a month, started doing some research, wrote an entirely new, like 25, 30 page proposal, and then one morning, surprised my editor by 
emailing him and saying, hey, Jake, I got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that that book you think I'm writing, I haven't been working on. The good news is that I think I got something better. See attached. Sincerely, Dan. And he bought well, it. Well, I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, first of all, my editor, uh, my longtime editor at Riverhead Books, Jake Morrissey, is just perhaps the loveliest human being on the planet. Uh, very, very smart and just a good human being all around. And um, and he's he's an open-minded guy. He said, okay, <laughs> let me see. And um, we worked it out. And, and I'm sure he said it with that same inflection, like, okay, let's see, right? That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. No, Jake is a Jake is a is an Irish Catholic guy from Vermont, so he doesn't do the like Larry David Brooklynese that I can do so effortlessly. <laughs> that that's pretty terrific. When we were uh, when we were talking about uh, about sort of how to prepare for our conversation with you, uh, Dan, Mary noticed that there's sort of a Charles Dickens-esque, almost like a a little bit of Christmas Carol thing going on. We got the regrets of, of the past. We got the regrets of the present. We got the regrets of the future, right? I mean, you, you kind of see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so have you thought of yourself as sort of a modern day Jacob Marley? Are you? <laughs> you know? No, I have not. Um, but but you make an interesting point, though, about the the, the temporal dimension of regret. And it's actually really important in, in, understand, in understanding regret. And, you know, our very ability to experience regret is because human beings have this incredible power. It's amazing. We don't stop and think about it to basically travel in our head through time. Yeah. Um, you know, to go backward in time and think about what things were like and then go forward in time and imagine what things were like. And and even and you pair that with our incredible storytelling capabilities, the fact that human beings are natural narrators and storytellers. You pair those two things and that's what gives regret its oomph. Um and it's, it's a really, you know, what's interesting, I think, about regret as an emotion is, is how complex it is, uh, how cognitively complex it is. And this is, this is why, you know, little kids don't, can't experience regret. Five-year-olds can't experience regret. Their brains haven't developed enough. Um, and, and, and to me, that's just something very telling about, there's something very telling about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, particularly as you think about using regret, as you talk about in the book, about changing your behavior and doing the different pieces of that, in particular about anticipated regret and aspects around that kind of Scrooge, right? Right. He, yeah. he got to see the future and he's yeah. like, I don't like that future. Alfred Noble, as you talk about in the book, all of those kind of things. Um, we right. talked with Roy Baumeister and he told us that he believed that anticipated regret yeah. was one of our biggest motivators. And it sounds like you agree, but maybe with some reservations. So you want to talk about that? I think it is a very important motivator. There's no question about that. Um, and like many motivators, and you guys have done a lot of work on motivation, like like many motivators, it can motivate us, but does it motivate us for good or ill? And and I think that the answer with with anticipated regret is that it's generally a pretty good and, and useful motivator. But as I say in the book, it should probably come with a warning label yeah. because um, it, do, it can steer us in wrong directions, particularly true when it, it comes to risk aversion. And, and my favorite, I, my favorite example of this is something, you know, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, in the still, even then the era of standardized tests, we we're taking standardized tests all the time, and, and or even multiple choice tests in school. And the, the council always was, don't switch your answer, yeah. go with your first instinct, you think it's C, and then you come back and you think it's A, don't switch. Um, and, and I was always, and I just, I just believed that because I'm like a gullible dude from the Midwest. <laughs> and the and then I then, then for this, I started looking at the, at the research. And what it showed pretty clearly is that you actually should switch your answer. You're more likely to get it right if you switch your answer. But the reason we don't switch our answer is anticipated regret um, gone awry because we because we anticipate incredible regret from switching from a right answer to a wrong answer. But we don't anticipate the appropriate amount of regret from simply sticking with the wrong answer. That that when we take an action, it becomes much more salient. And so we're more likely to regret it. And so this anticipated regret of going from wrong to uh, of right from right to wrong makes us prevents us from doing the right thing. So there are examples of that. But 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 it's important. And also the other thing about anticipated regret that's so interesting, I, I think, is that it's important that we anticipate that we don't overdo it. You know, we can't anticipate every regret. You know, I don't, I don't want, I don't, you know, it, it can be paralyzing. Should I buy a blue car? You know, am I going to regret buying a blue car or a gray car? Am I going to regret, you know, having um, 
uh, LeBron for dinner or Serena for dinner. You know, you you get you get you get you get, you can get paralyzed by that. And so I think it's important that we anticipate the regrets that we know are going to be the most important factors in leading a good and productive and meaningful life. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't help like, the the Monty Hall uh, problem, the Gilovich research, right on this. Like it, it it's it has to be in, in part because I don't want to change my answer because it's so salient, it's so important to me right now. Like this is the only thing I have to do. This is the most important thing. Oh my God, I can't change my answer. If you're on if you're on, uh, you know, if there's nothing, if there's only one thing your listeners learned from this hour together with all of us is, if you're on, let's make a deal. Switch. <laughs> Um, you heard it first say, from Dan. Payne. I have. Yeah, no, no. It's like the Monty Hall problem. I don't. I mean, it'll hurt my head to go over oh, it too God. carefully. I actually, when I first encountered it, I didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to me. And I, no joke, I have a one of my daughters is a is a very you know very good kind of math science person. You know, just 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 always been like super adept at that. And when she was about 16, she explained it to me and I understood it for like five minutes. And then, um, but, 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 but here's the thing with me, it's like, I always can see the big picture and it's like, okay, switch. Yeah. Um, So, so switch your answer on, on, on standardized tests, switch your answer, switch your, the door, you, your, the, the, the door you number two. let's make a deal. Well, you understood it for five minutes longer than I understood it. So that's all I have to say there, but that is (laughs) really good. One of the things that really uh, struck me uh, personally when I was reading the book is that your your career seems to be evolving from a writer to a researcher. You're, you seem to be investing a lot more time in research. Uh, hmm. you, you you just sort of shrugged for those uh, of our listeners who who can't see that. But is that is that a fair assessment or or not so fair? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not something that I <laughs> honestly. I mean, it's not something that I'm consciously. It's, it's not like a conscious strategic decision. It's just that um, like for this particular book, uh, what I wanted, to, I wanted, I had ideas for how to do my own research on this. Um, and part of that was because um, I felt like some of the research on regret, a lot of it is very, very good. Uh, um, I felt that some of it was a little bit too theoretical mm. uh, and and didn't yield enough practical insights. And so that's one of the things that I like from from research. And also the other thing about it I mean, is that it's become a lot easier to do that. I mean, if you think about if, if you think about your ability, to, like like I was able to do a pretty sophisticated piece of survey research for not that much money um, without basically leaving my office. And I was able to, you know, go through the I was able to go through the data in part with the help of my 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 um, that same daughter who has a, now has a master's in computational social science. Um, wow. And, um, you know, and, and go through and go through some of that. But even I can go through some of that. Even I can go. In, and it's it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. I had a job once years and years ago when I was in high school. Um, I grew up, in, as I said, in Columbus, Ohio, which is the state capital. And so I, I had a job once like doing calls for like a polling firm. And I think about like that, where you're like on a landline calling people and getting their answers. And I'm like marking things with a pencil and then versus the ability to assemble these panels, do it online, get the data immediately, go into the data and be able to do even a a schmo like me, go into the data and be able to like do these cross tabs and other kinds of analysis. It's just amazing how good the tools are and how easy it is. And so that's kind of exciting to me, but I, but it's, this is like, you know, I, I, I appreciate your calling it an evolution. It's just like, to me, yeah. it was more like the next thing that I did. We've, we've talked to Ron Kivitz at Columbia University. I don't know if you know Ron, but uh, he did some some research that is not published about um, about regret when he went to uh, alumni uh, gatherings mm. and it asked alumni who were yeah. one year, five years, twenty years, and fifty years out of school about about their their spring break of senior year. Did they did they stay back at school and study, or did they go party? Right. And I think you're probably anticipating the results already, right? That the early, that the, the one year, five year uh, grads were like, oh man, I shouldn't have partied. I should have stayed and studied. But by the time you get out to 50 years, the, re- the regret reverses. And, and the, the 50 year grads are like, I, I went and I stayed and studied and I shouldn't have, I should, I really, I really regret not going and partying. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if you, 
plan on continuing this, uh, the, both the American and the world uh, studies? You know, do you to go back and develop some longitudinal uh, work on on any of this? Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, I, I could go back on the, the, you know, the the world, the 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 quantitative part was a, you know, was a, was a one-time thing. I'm still I'm still gathering in in the world regret survey, which is the qualitative thing, where I just said, tell me about one of your regrets, and we got this um, extraordinary number of regrets from 105 countries, and they're still coming in. Every time I go to wow. the database, you can see a little thing in the upper right-hand corner about how many people are filling it out right now, and there's always somebody on there. Cool. And, um, and, and so I might, yeah, I think, I, I think I would, um, I think I would, I think I would continue that. Um, it's an interesting question about whether they're going to be longitudinal differences. Um, you know, you know, differences, you know, in, I, 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 I saw the one thing that I saw sort of as a proxy for that in the quantitative stuff was differences in, in, in age, uh, particularly when it came to regrets of action versus inaction. Yeah. It sort of goes to your point of your question. What I found is that, in this American sample, at age 20, people had about equal numbers of action regrets. I regret what I did. Inaction regrets. I regret what I didn't uh, do. But uh, as people age, inaction regrets predominate. But you know, that's that 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 spring break, that spring break research reminds me of one of my favorite regrets from from from, from the book. You know, I collected all these regrets from around the world, and one of my favorite comes from a a 58 year old woman in Colorado. So I, I knew from the database, I asked people's age and I asked their gender, they could they would submit anonymously, they could include their email address if they wanted to do a follow up interview. So all I know from her is that she's a 58 year old female in Colorado, but she says her big regret is not going to see Prince in concert because it was a school night, <sighs> tons of school nights versus one Prince. Stupid choice. <laughs> I loved that one, too. Yeah. I, I, I love that. one of my one of my all time. One of my all-time favorites. I tried to get into. Yeah, I I, I said I, I saw that one. I was like, okay. I had a folder over there on my desk, and it's like the ones that have to go in, and that was one of them. Yeah, I'm so glad because Kurt and I live in a town where where Prince grew up, and uh, I've actually recorded at Paisley Park, and so oh. like this whole idea of giving up one night for Prince is like, holy Hannah, of course you would. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yep. But at the time, absolutely need to do but that. at the time, you know, you don't necessarily realize that you, you, th unless the person is sitting there thinking about anticipated regrets, it's like, I got a lot of schoolwork tomorrow. I got a lot of things to do. I will probably regret that because my parents will yell at me or whatever else will happen. And you don't extend out that time horizon long enough to realize that, the regret from a long-term life is probably going to be much bigger about missing that one-time opportunity versus that short-term, all right, yeah, you know, my parents will be disappointed, my teacher will be mad, whatever else has happened within there. And, and I think that's one of the bigger issues as we think about this is, is the anticipated regret, but also, you know, trying to understand, like, can we really understand what's going to be the bigger regret as we move forward in our life? We can't know that, Kurt. But I think we can predict it with some accuracy. Okay, and how do Not we do that? Accuracy, but some accuracy, because again, okay, because here's the thing: going to these these this massive collection of regrets. What I found in looking them over and sitting here in this office and doing the laborious work of reading through them all it, and, and trying to sort them is that around the world, people kept expressing the same four regrets over and over again. Uh, and one of those regrets was. A bold, one of the big categories were boldness regrets, which is if only I'd taken the chance. Now, let me take a step back because it goes to something you guys were saying earlier. So traditionally, when, when researchers have looked at regrets, the, really the question of what people regret, they, they tabulate regrets and they do it by the domain of somebody's life. This is an education regret. This is a career regret. This is a health regret. And that's what I did in my quantitative survey. I had people put them in these categories. And throughout the, the research on regret, the, the answer kept coming up the same. People regret a lot of different stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'll figure this out. I'll ask him. And I determined people regret a lot of different stuff. Um, and then in the qualitative stuff, I, I noticed something else going on. And, and forgive this long-winded answer, but I think it makes a point. So what you have is that you have, let's say, people who went to college. I'm amazed at the number of people who, who went to college and regretted not studying abroad. That was a big regret for a lot of people. Okay, so that's an education regret. Then I have regrets all over the country. If someone had a crush on somebody, a man or a woman who they really liked, they didn't ask them out, they wanted to, but they were too chicken. I have hundreds of those from around the world, hundreds of those from around the world. That's a, ro that's a romance regret. Then I have people who say, oh, I always wanted to start a business, but I didn't do it. 
and then step up and do it. That's a career regret. But those are all the same regret into my mind. Those are regrets that say, if only I'd taken the chance. And it doesn't so much matter the domain of life that you're in. It, it is the taking the chance itself. And what does that tell us? That tells us that human beings, I think, that human beings want to learn and grow, that we want to lead psychologically rich lives. And so I think that if we know that, we can anticipate regrets. So we, we, can, we can take that 58-year-old woman in Colorado and, and spin her back in time and say whatever her 17-year-old self and say, listen, like, you know what? Um, going to a Prince concert is part of leading a psychologically rich life and an act of boldness. And what we know, the prediction is going to be that you will regret missing Prince much more than you will mention, than you will miss, than you will regret not operating on, a, not doing something on a school night. And again, but it's a balance because if, if it were, if she were taking, oh, you know what? I, I had my medical boards the next day <laughs> and I went to see a Prince conference. I, I mean, I don't mean that as a joke because, because like, that's a different, that's a different calculus. That's a different right, calculus. Right. And, and you have people who have regrets about not, not something as dramatic as that, but you have plenty of people who regret big regret or foundation regrets, which are, you know, if only I'd done the work, yeah. uh, people who didn't work hard enough in school. So there, you know, there, there are plenty of that, but it, but, um, um, and, and so, you know, you can think of that. So, so, so you can, so, you, so I think we know what people are going to regret. We can, we can make an educated guess about what people are going to, are going to regret the most. And it ends up being these, these four core things that I think reveal a lot about what makes life worth living. Okay. You just touched on something that's a really, really nice, important part about this. And that is the, the balance. Uh, because w when, when reading about boldness, there's the, oh man, I should have kissed her. You know, I should have asked her out, you know, if, if, if stories like this. But then there's also the, the, the moral regret of, I shouldn't have slept with him. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have, you know, uh, gotten involved with this woman, whatever the, the story is. Yeah. And, and, and there was a part of me that was like, well, is the does the boldness regret say, well, we should just act on our impulses, but we have this moral thing that says, no, we've got social rules that we need to sort of play by, right? It, it, it's a great question, and it, it, it depends. Uh, um, I, I think that in general, we should err toward taking sensible risks. Mm. I think in general, the people who I heard from um, didn't take enough risks. There were people who who, had a, who who said, I regret starting a business and having it fail. There were definitely people like that. But for every one of those, there were 25 who regretted not doing that. So, you know, so it's not like it's completely it's not like it's completely binary. Now, the moral stuff is very interesting because we don't have a we meaning human beings. We don't have a uniform sense of what it means to be moral. We have some things that we share. You shouldn't harm people. You shouldn't cheat people. But on other things you had, I mean, I, I have people in, in the database who, and I talk to them who regret, for instance, not serving in the military. Mm. And there's some people because they think that that's a, they, 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 they didn't uphold their duty. And, and I can totally understand that as a moral regret, but I, I, I mentioned that to somebody uh, a few weeks ago and they said, well, what, what, <laughs> that's okay. What do you, what, you know, what, why, why are you bothered by that? Like, you know, and it's like, well, you, but you don't you, because your moral code doesn't really have a facet of of duty as as some people do. And one, it's not right or wrong. It's just it's just different. I mean, I had let's 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 say let's take something totally uncontroversial: abortion. Um, <laughs> I um, I I had I had um, you know, it's like like this this country is very divided on the morality of abortion, and I had people who. Um, several women who their big regret was was having was terminating a pregnancy, and and that is a for them that was a moral breach. For someone else, that might not be a moral breach. And so with morality, it's like okay, you just I, I mean I really think you have to be we ha we have to I mean this is this is and you know from reading the book like 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 John Height's work on yeah. on moral on on moral psychology has change my view on a lot of that, that we have to have, I think, a more expansive view of morality. And, um, and, and I do think that people like me, who might be a little bit more on the kind of secular end of the spectrum, and it might be a little bit more on the slightly left of center part of the political spectrum, need to recognize that the moral code that we believe in is not the right moral code, it is a moral code, and there are other people who have a moral code that is different, not worse, just different. Yeah, and I think you bring up Jonathan Haidt. I think that's wonderful on that. So 
we've talked about, you said you had four different kinds of regrets as we've talked about here. And you've talked about boldness. We've talked a little bit about foundation. Maybe you can expand on that. And then you talked about moral regrets. And then there's connecting um, or connection regrets. You want to expand a little bit more on the foundational one and then talk a little bit about the connection yeah. because I think our listeners, listeners will want to know. Yeah, foundation's pretty simple. It's if only I'd done the work. And so th- th- these are people who, re- I have a lot of people who regret not saving money. Uh, I have a lot of people who regret not, uh, around the world especially, less in the United States, a lot from different parts of the world about regretting smoking. I have a lot of people who regret not taking care of their health. Uh, so, so, and, and those are like, you know, small decisions that we make that end up accumulate that over time accumulate into, into bigger, into bigger problems. Uh, so that's, that's a, a pretty important. And, and I, and again, each of these regrets, as I argue, surfaces a need that we have. And I think there the need is stability. And, and I don't want to, I think sometimes we don't, you know, in our, in our reveling over kind of what makes life worth living, we forget that stability actually is a very important part of people's lives, that it's hard to appreciate, you know, it, it's harder to lead a psychologically rich life if you're in fear, if you're insecure, if you're worried about your your stability all the time. Um, but connection regrets are a really interesting one. And it's the biggest category, as you say, and it deals with, not surprisingly, with relationships. But a very expansive notion of relationships. To me, again, as a layperson looking at this, just looking at the world, I feel like we sort of over-indexed on romantic relationships and under-indexed on the importance of a whole a wider swath of relationships, as people told me. Um, so so connection, connection regrets are you have a relationship or you should have had a relationship and it, or it should have been attacked or was intact, and then it comes apart. And I think one of the interesting things about these connection regrets is that they come apart in profoundly undramatic ways in most cases. They're just, you know, it's just not that interesting. They just kind of drift. And, and, and as a consequence, it comes further apart. And one person says, oh, I should reach out, but no, it's going to be awkward and they're not going to care. And, uh, and so they drift further apart. And these are things like, again, not only, it's not so much romantic relationships. That's part of it. But it's relationships, parents and kids, siblings, relatives, friends. One of my takeaways from this is the deep meaning of friendship in people's lives. Now, that might seem kind of self-evident, but to hear it in people's voices, how much drifting apart from friends hurt and and how much reconnecting with them meant was really powerful to me. So so connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And for me personally, you guys, that was the, I think, the biggest personal takeaway um, that yeah, I I really do. I mean, like, like I basically have decided based on this that you know, if, if one, meaning me or anybody, but like, like if, if I'm at a juncture where I think, should I reach out or should I not reach out? I've answered the question. I should reach yeah. out. That simply getting to that juncture gives you the answer to that question. And I really mean that always reach out. Uh, one of the things that stuck with me is a number of people who have regrets about missed funerals. Um, and I didn't write about that in the book, but it's something, it's something there. And I, and I have a regret about that. There's a, a guy who I worked with, lovely guy, and he had a funeral and the funeral actually, I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, the funeral was actually walking distance to my house. And for whatever reason, on the day of the funeral, I wasn't like a close, close friend of his, but I'd work with him and I, and I liked him. On the day of the funeral, whatever, I had a deadline or something like that. And I was thinking about going and I decided not to go and I didn't go and it still bugs me. And it's not like anybody in his family says, oh, where's Dan? I can't believe he didn't show up. It was all, you know, I wasn't like, I was not at all in a tight inner circle, but, but again, that's a form of, it's a form of reaching out. So, so for me, it's like, always reach out, always go to the funeral. If you're thinking about it, do it. Yeah. I, I hear that in the stories that you tell in the book, I think are really powerful and really show that. And I think that's really a fascinating part of this book. I've also heard, and you mentioned this just like here, like this part didn't make it into the book that you go through a very intensive process of researching your books, sometimes spending months and months kind of on one area or a couple different areas. And then sometimes only a few sentences might get into the book or some times maybe not any of that getting into the book. So for this book, what was it that you had to cut or maybe limit that you go, God, if it was just more interesting or it could have, you know, had a 300, 500 page book, I would have loved to put this in, but because I couldn't, what what were some of those pieces that you had um, for, for regret? 
Well, your your listeners don't know that I have my face in my hands and I'm shaking my head right now. <laughs> exactly. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry to give you you know the regret that you couldn't put this in. No, but here's the thing. Okay, I'm happy to talk about this because it's it, it's very therapeutic for me. So there were a few things. Um, one of them had to do with the um, basically regret and child development, mm. and and I spent about a month reading the papers on that and reading it over. And then when I started writing about it, I realized I could pretty much write it all in one paragraph. <laughs> um, and that, and, and so the only thing worse than writing it, spending a month going through this stuff and writing it in one paragraph, the only thing worse than that would have been spending a month writing about it over five pages and torturing readers. <laughs> and so, you know, so, so you have to, you have to do that. I had this, this, this great, uh, idea of like, I'm going to come up with the ultimate rules of regret, like how, how regret really operates. And I had this giant file with all that stuff. And, you know, I had a whiteboard going and I started working on it and reading and crossing stuff out and doing it. And I was like, Hmm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure there are these rules because I think they all basically come back to the difference between action and inaction. And I just said it. So maybe that's not a chapter. So, you know, again, so it's, but that, but that's writing, that's thinking, that's researching. That's just, that's just the, the, the break, that's just the breaks of the game. And, and I don't like it, believe me, I don't like it. But what I, what I dislike more is not serving readers well or falling into the sunk cost fallacy. You know, it's like, well, I spent a month researching it, so it has to have five pages. <laughs> No, it doesn't. Well, bravo uh, to you, Dan, for for being willing to kill your darlings and having the ability to see what you know to see clearly. That that's not an easy thing to do. Not obviously, not all of us do that very well. Well, it's something that I learned how to do. Um, in that, I mean, I sort of have a brutal approach to the stuff that I write in the sense that I essentially require every sentence to make the case to me why it shouldn't be cut. Um, cause one of the things that I dislike about books that I've read is that, and, and again, this has gotten me in trouble with like people in the publishing industry and whatever, just, I mean, not, not in trouble, but people arguing with me thinking that I'm like, you know, like a, a Philistine or an anti-intellectual, <laughs> but, um, people saying that my, my, my view is that many books, particularly nonfiction books are too long. Um, that the writers, uh, they're not rigorous enough in just getting, Paring it down, getting to the point, eliminating the fluff. And that's something that I try to do in that's something that I try to do in my books because I admire it in I admire it in other books. You know, Mary did Mary was the one that brought up this uh, this Dickens uh, Christmas Carol thing. Uh, I almost saw the book like a novel. There was a part of me that was like, you have to set up the characters and then you bring in the conflict between the characters, and then everything gets resolved, you know. At, at the end where like the Odyssey doesn't get resolved. You know, we, uh, you know, Ulysses, Odysseus doesn't even find Penelope until like book 18, you know, of the 24 <laughs> books, you know, and, and there was this real sense of jubilation in, in, in getting those last three chapters of just going, wow, this is just the, the payoff was, ter was terrific, Dan. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, you're, really you're, you're giving me a little bit too much credit for a evolving, like oh, you're evolving <laughs> into a researcher and B constructing it like a novelist. But, but I do think, I do think, I mean, I, I mean, for the, for the listeners who might be interested in this, I think that for, I think that in most kinds of writing, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of a structuralist when it comes in, in my view about writing. I, I think that structure is one of the most important things in any kind of uh, in any kind of writing project. And for me, even if it is a shorter piece, but certainly for a book, the first part of doing it for me is a discovery of like what is the structure. Mm. And for me, once I figure this, once I begin figuring out the structure, I begin seeing it more clearly being it more, more clearly in my head. And so the structure of this book, as I went through the research, it took me a while to figure this out, but I did have a breakthrough once. I mean, I, I remember it. I was out for a walk with my wife and, and I, I, yeah, I said, oh, wait a second. The first part is about reclaiming regret. Okay. So we're going to call that regret reclaimed. And I use that word reclaim in some of the writing. It's like, okay, we're going to like, we have this, un this emotion. We haven't understood it. Let's reclaim it. Then it's like, well, wait a second. I'm also doing this research to reveal regret. So the second part is regret revealed. And then 
as you know, as Tim is saying, I like I want to talk about what to do about it. So let's talk about regret remade. Yeah. And once I saw that, those three sections, that structure, I was like, oh, okay, this book is beginning to reveal to me what it actually is. I also want to call into call to mind that uh, you know, self compassion was an important part of the book as well. So that that seemed to have a pretty big impact on you. Yeah, it did. Thank you for noticing that because I guess part of it was I was clueless about self compassion until I started doing this research and. And I think that part of it, I, I know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that. And, and part of it, I guess, being like a, you know, a, you know, so at least a self-identified, like non-touchy-feely, rational guy, that, that I just maybe I didn't gravitate because of the, the the word. And then I then I started looking at the research, and I was just blown away. It is a powerful concept. The other thing that surprised me in in self-compassion is is um, again sort of adjacent to that is some of the the big downsides of self-esteem um as a you know uh, self-esteem is not all good obviously and, and i i didn't know a lot of that work but also i was really surprised by the research showing the efficacy of self-criticism because it doesn't exist yeah. <laughs> um yeah. self-criticism is like I, I couldn't find much evidence at all that self-criticism is 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 useful uh that most of it seems to me like a form of of um kind of virtue signaling to yourself. Look what a, look what a hard ass I'm being on myself. Look, I really am a serious performer. I'm going to, you know, talk to myself like, you know, like like I'm the great Santini. Yeah. And, and I think you, you I don't know where that one came the from. The great Santini. <laughs> but but you know, I like there Pat Conroy. I like Pat Conroy and I like uh, Robert Duvall in the movie, so. I think it's interesting though as you talk about this this uh, idea of the self-compassion, but self, you know, criticism doesn't work. And we know that, I mean, the research also shows that criticism doesn't necessarily work. And even if it's not self-criticism, if it's criticizing somebody and you're trying to improve their behavior. And so it just makes really good sense. And I really like how you brought that in. I do want to have you read a section of the book because I, a, it's a really powerful piece and it's just the last paragraph of the book. So could you uh, find that for us. And if you wouldn't mind, I would love to have you read that. And then I want to ask you just a question about that. Just the last paragraph, not the 10,000 that come before. No, not the 10,000. <laughs> just, just <laughs> summarize that, everything in that. This, no, okay. So yeah. this is, you, uh, all right, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go on here a little, a little bit because it, it, you talked about this earlier. You said many times you, you think that there's, you know, authors write too much and they just kind of go, and I will, I will, echo that opinion. And Tim and I talked about this actually beforehand. There are too many times where you go, all right, the first three or four chapters of a book are good. And then it's like, oh, they're filling in. They got to They got to get their 300 pages or whatever it is. And it's just like, oh, it's getting painful and painful. Your book, it was started off good and it got better. And then I'm like, oh, and I'm waiting for the downfall and it just kept getting better. And for me, it actually, this is like the green light at the end of the thing. And this is a Fitzgerald moment of the ending of your book here. I love uh, So not, you know, so there you go. So, so um, read this, this final, final paragraph here. Okay. I am, I am now quoting myself, which is always a very appealing thing to do in front of people. Here we go. After a few years immersed in the science and experience of our most misunderstood emotion, I've discovered about myself what I've discovered about others. Regret makes me human. Regret makes me better. Regret gives me hope. It's amazing to me. I mean, so so A, I think that's A, you write beautifully across the entire book in different pieces, but I think we it's really it. powerful. Yeah. But I think what's Thanks really interesting about this is is the summarization of this is that this part about human about your human humanity. My God, I can't even talk here, right? And about making you better and about giving you hope. And so can you not to have you explain that because I think it's written really well. And, if, and for all of our listeners, go read the book because I think it, the book will help you understand what he, you're saying there. But this human aspect, how, how does regret make us human? How does it make us better? And, and why do you think it gives us hope? So, I mean, it makes us human because everybody has regrets. That's, that's the thing. That, this is why I spent part of the book pushing back on this no regrets philosophy, mm. which is absurd. Everybody has regrets. I mean, as you guys, I mean, not having regrets is a sign of a problem. It's a sign that you're five years old or you have brain damage or you're a sociopath, but everybody has regrets. And when we think about this, we say like, well, this is a very common emotion. Everybody has it. Well, let's think about this. It, it must serve some kind of purpose. And it does that when we treat our regrets right, they are instructive. They clarify, they give us 
a path to do things better in the future. And so once we realize that's the whole point about reclaiming this emotion. And, and at some level, I think I was reclaiming it for myself as well. You guys earlier asked, you know, about, you know, research as me search and, and it, and I'm, I'm confessing to that and that, you know, I, part of this was about how I was reckoning with my own regrets and saying, wait a second, I have these regrets and I never talk about them. And yet this one time when I started thinking about them because of this catalytic moment, and I started talking with other people, I had a reaction that really surprised me. What's going on here? And so, um, and so, and, and I also don't, I also think that, that um, you can't spend a couple of years on a book and have it not change you. I mean, and again, not to get all woo woo on you here, but, but the me who started this is different from the me who finished this because the me who finished this spent all this time looking through 16,000 regrets, all this time talking, having people on, they're almost all Zoom interviews on Zoom break into tears because they felt bad about bullying somebody 40 years ago. Um, um, tell me about their infidelity. Tell me about dreams that went awry. And and one of the things that came out of this, let's take moral regrets, for instance, is that moral, the moral regrets give me hope because the fact that people are bothered mm. by these moral breaches 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, in some cases, 60 years later after the incident makes me think, gosh, you know what? We want to be good. And, and, and you can't like have all these conversations and read all these stories of longing and aspiration without saying, you know what? Our species as fucked up as it is, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> our, can I say fucked up? You can okay. say fucked up as many times as you like. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, you, you can't read all these regrets and think about our species and say as fucked up as it is that there's still re that we're still probably going to be okay. Yeah. That that there's something fundamentally good and decent and aspirational about most of us, and and that's what gave me hope. You started the book, uh, and you just alluded to this, Dan, uh, with uh, no regrets. Uh, that magnificent song that Edith Piaf made popular. It became a tattoo meme within the book, <laughs> which was pretty great. Uh, loved that. Um, I have to admit, I was a little disappointed there wasn't a little bit more on Edith Piaf or more music. And so I'm going to have to put you on the spot now and say, if you were on a desert island for a year, what would be the three artists that you would uh, that you would carry along with you? Musical artists. The three musical artists. Yeah. Okay. That's a very interesting one. So I'm going to go with Okay, I'm gonna go. I have two immediately came to mind. Good. And um, okay, I got all three. Okay. Um, it's an interesting question. I've never thought about it before. So, Simon and Garfunkel. Perfect. Ella Fitzgerald. Oh yeah. J.S. Bach. Oh. Fantastic choices, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Thank you. No, but it's it's it's, it's, it's interesting because you got to think about like what would you like. I'm taking your exercise seriously. It's like what would you want to listen to yep. a lot. Yep. So if you look at my, you know, if you look at my playlist for for when I run, all right. So when I run on the treadmill, you know, I've got. I mean, this is embarrassing, but I've got like, you know, Three Dog Night and Men Without Hats. <laughs> And Bob Seger. It's like, I don't want to be stuck on a desert island with, with men without hats. No. <laughs> I'll run to some men without hat songs. But being on a desert island, listening to only men without hats is probably a a a punishment for a white collar crime somewhere in the world. Yeah, I think that's a that's a version <laughs> of hell at some at some level. It's one of the levels in in, in hell right there. So and even Bob Seger, who I like, it's like, oh my God, yeah. here it is again. Yeah, yeah uh, but I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. But one more, you know, against the wind or turn yeah. the page is like, holy Hannah, let yeah. let's let go of that. Uh, I I just have to ask, you know, what we we actually talked to someone recently. First of all, Bach has actually come up several times when we've asked this question. Bach is 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 fairly common. I would tend to lean more toward Beethoven for my own personal classical choice, but uh, again, personal choice. But Ella Fitzgerald has come up a bunch. Really? Yeah. And yeah. I think part of it is, is that if I were on a desert island by myself, I, I would want that voice mm. uh, because, um, because, that, because that voice 
is the voice it's such a human voice it's it's a mm -hmm. it's a voice that would might remind me that i'm human um, and i don't even mean the melody so much as just her own actual voice and the way that she can take a song and just wring the emotion of it because it's so deeply human so i i could take um live in live at berlin in 1960 i could take that record fr from ella fitzgerald as my only record from ella because in that she has perfection. She delivers songs just, you know, exactly as you expect them. And then she tries Mac the knife and fails terribly at the lyrics. Oh, really? Awful. Just like, and, and the audience is just, oh man, you could just, they're on pins and needles. Like they don't care if she's completely fucking up the words. It's like, oh my God, it's Ella Fitzgerald. It doesn't matter if she, <laughs> she doesn't get the words right. <laughs> And she's fascinating. So yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. It's a, it's a really, it's a super, it's a super interesting exercise. But I, I hope it doesn't come to my being alone on a desert yeah, island. There you go. Well, we hope the same uh, for you as well, and we are grateful for your for your time and your conversation today, Dan. Thank you for being a guest on Behavioral Groups. What a pleasure! I really enjoyed it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Dan, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our regrettably human brains. Oh, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that you regret that we have brains? No, I'm just regretting that they're <laughs> human brains and they are, Not you know, brains? biased and, you know, conspiracy theories yeah. and all that. Actually... I need to change that, yeah. don't I? I should, I'm doing an if only, if only we had better ah. brains that didn't have these things, but I should say at least we have human brains because look at Ooh. what we've actually been able to do with those brains. Yeah. Very clever. We're going to have to come back to that. All right. We're going to have to absolutely have to come back to that. Okay, so what do you think our, our, our grooving session should focus on here, Kurt? So I think both from the book and from the, the, the session that we had with Dan, I think the key piece that I would kind of take away from this is that regret can be a tool that can be used to improve our lives. If, if we understand regret and we understand how to use regret in a positive way to a motivate us to overcome the pain that we feel with this and to make a difference in our lives. So I think that's really cool. Well, then we have to start with the fact that regret is complex, no. that there's a lot of nuance to it. And I'm really grateful that Dan wrote the book and and did the categories and and sort of sifted through it all, both in qualitative and quantitative research, and we kind of revealed the fact that it is just universal. Yeah. I mean, once it gets past like six, seven years old, it's universal, right? The little kids don't. Yeah, this idea that that we all have it. It's part of what makes us human. It's this idea too that. Um, it's complex, as you said. I think he said it. He called it uh, cognitively complex. This idea that yeah, you know yeah. we can have two people can do the exact same action, and one person can feel regret over it, and the other person eh, doesn't matter. And there's various different phases and shades of all of that. And I think, as he mentions too, or this idea that hey, regret gets a bum rap, and it's always seen as a negative. And he's trying to change that, and he's saying, you know what? No. It's, it's, it's complex, it's universal, and we can use it to make our lives better. But before we get to the make our lives better, maybe let's just do a quick recap on the four um, components that, that are in the book. Yeah. How about if we start there? So there's the foundational regrets, these ideas, these small things that we don't do or that we do do that add up over time. This idea, I didn't study enough, so I got bad grade. I didn't save yeah. enough, so now I don't have savings. This idea, you know, I didn't exercise or I ate too much all the time instead of, you know, yeah. doing different things. Foundational regrets. And there's other regrets that I think, you know, I want my kids to learn and to, to read this part of the book. I know they won't, but I would yeah. like that. Maybe they'll listen to the podcast, but even if they do, I think it's going to be hard because they don't have that part of their prefrontal cortex that is ready to receive this information yet. But this is the foundational stuff I wish I would have known when I was younger. But but, but that said, do you have any major foundational regrets? Nah. nah I don't. Cool savings. No, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. good. How about you? I did when I was younger. I, I did after grad school. I, I, I regretted not doing better uh, in high school so that I could have gotten into a more competitive undergrad program, which could have gotten me into a more competitive <laughs> grad program. But you know what? Sand through the fingers. That that all washed away, did fortunately. It? I did. 
Yeah, I, it, it really did. I, it, it, it ended up not being a big deal for me after I was in my mid-30s, I think. Oh, wow. So. All right. So, okay, so, so next one is boldness regrets. And these are these, right. I didn't ask out the girl. I didn't go to the Prince concert because I was too yeah. worried I was going to study. I didn't go on spring break. And, you know, so all those things that we talked about. Um, and I think there's those are really powerful. Those Those can be big ones. And again, the lesson here is, you know, sometimes you just got to do stuff, even if it's going to mean that you get less sleep and do different things. So how about <laughs> you, Tim? Any any boldness regrets on your side? Yes, absolutely. Big boldness regret from second year in college. I wanted to pursue the music industry as a career, went to LA, mm -hmm. spent a few weeks in LA, uh, interviewing with record industry execs during the day for the white collar job, uh, playing clubs at night and open mics for the studio musician guy job. And after a couple of weeks left saying, it's not for me. <gasps> But, I'm not going to do so it. So this is interesting. We've talked about this many times and, and this idea because you're going, this is <laughs> yeah. a boldness. We're going to go, no, this is actually boldness and personified because you went to LA. I you, did. I don't know if I you did. got on a bus and rode the bus out and did all of that, but you went to LA and you tried, you met with record executives, you played yeah. the clubs, you did the open mics, you did it. You didn't, it wasn't this, oh, sitting in, you know, where were you in? in uh nebraska at the time right yeah, yeah and going i yeah. wish i should just go out to la and then never doing it you did it and yet years later after we talked to annie duke uh, i think maybe the first time a few years ago annie said you know go back to a big decision that you made and really wrestle with it you know really break it down and so i did and found that there was absolutely iron gauntlet compelling, convincing reasons that I made the right decision. Oh. There was nothing that I could look at. And yet there was, I still harbored that regret until, 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 until you and Mary and I were talking about this and, and you helped reframe this as Dan Pink says, moved it from the, if only into the, uh, at least oh. which you just, which you just did. And, and so when we had that conversation, it finally became sand through the fingers and I finally let go of it. So that that's a long story. Well, but. thank you, Dan Pink, because yes. we have we've gotten a regret and, off of Tim's shoulder. So there you go. And thank you, Kurt Nelson and Mary Kayla for actually doing that. Okay. All right. Uh, how about... Uh, how about moral? So how, I, I am, uh, I would never tell you about any of my moral regrets. Oh, well, the moral regrets, and I, I don't have any <laughs> because I grew up petty pure, but the moral regrets are the, are have, you know, have to do with uh, those, those moral foundations, things that we would oftentimes link with Jonathan Haidt's work on moral foundations, you know, uh, careness and harm and authority and, uh, sanctity and, you know, uh, did I enter the priesthood or not? Yeah. You know, did I serve military? Did I marry the, you know, that person or not with fidelity, those kinds of things. And this is, so those are important. Those are important. And it's one of the things I think Dan uh, talked about too, in this, this complexity piece, the nuance piece, this right. is ones where for some people that's a moral regret. And for others, it's like, why would it, that's not even a moral thing. And so understanding yeah. those, and that's where Jonathan Haidt's work, I think fits nicely into this and the difference that we have in kind of our moral foundations that we have as, as individuals. Yeah. So, but connections, the, the fourth one, that's a biggie for you. Oh man. Well, think about this. So what, what fascinated me is when Dan mentioned that this was the largest group of, of regrets, this idea mm -hmm. that, these connections, which as you have said, don't end with a bang typically, these that they kind of just drift. They they float yeah. away and like that person you were really close to and now you don't talk to them for weeks and then maybe you connect and then it's months and then it's years. And those are the ones. And so I think from our perspective, um, the lesson that I'm taking out of this is look, that is the biggest group of regrets. So as people, what do we need to be focused in on? Is it our job? Is it the, you know, how much money I'm making? Is it, you know, healthy lifestyle? Yeah, all those things are important, but really make sure we stay connected with those people in our lives that make sure we're working at building and maintaining those positive relationships. Reach out to that old friend, go to the wedding, go to the funeral, go to the birthday party, go to the dinner, reach out on Facebook, man, just do it. Just connect. If you ask yourself the question, should I reach out? You've already answered it. 
I was a great, paraphrase great Dan. paraphrase of Dan. That's great. So, so I think that leads into, so those are the four foundational kind of archetypes of, of regret as Dan has outlined them, but that leads into the last part of his book, which I think is really interesting and really powerful because it's the part where, how do we apply this to make, um, to learn, to motivate ourselves and to set a better future for ourselves. And this is where we get some tools of, of how to do this. And we already talked about one, this idea of at least versus if only changing yep. that self-talk. And that, that I think is really powerful as you already talked about. Look, it changed this whole boldness regret that you've had. And now it's sand through your fingers, as you said. There's two that, that kind of go together for me. One is uh, self-disclosure, this idea of sharing your regrets with other people. Because they're, And by the way, the Catholic Church has been doing this for years. We call this confession. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's institutionalized in some, in, yeah. in some world religions. Uh, but there's also an, an aspect of self-distancing that comes along with this. Of if we take ourselves out of the situation, and if we can just imagine, what if the shoe were on the other foot? Mm. Right? We even have an expression in English about that what if you put this what if the shoe were on the other foot um, if you if if i frame something as being kind of weird for me as uh if, if i reached out to you for instance mm -hmm. if i'm hesitating reaching out to you and i'm thinking that that's going to be weird what if i just re what if i put the shoe on the other foot and say what, what would it be like if, if kurt reached out to me yeah. i wouldn't feel weird about that so i need to self-distance and ask that question in a way that gets me away from that lack of self-compassion lack of you know, the self-distancing really helps. I love that. I love that. And the way you said that, and Dan talked a little bit about that and read the book because there's some really good stuff in there about that. But this idea that, hey, if I feel something is going to be creepy, but then if I do it, but if I, you know, like reaching out, but then I, you ask me the question, well, what if that person reached out to you? And you said, no, that'd be great. Well, yeah. But it's hard. It's hard to put that because we, there is the kind of this, this reverse you know, attribution error that we have on, on that, right? you know, I know and so it's, weird? it is, it's weird because if somebody, yeah, I can say, well, yeah, it'd be fine, but no, it's, it's still creepy for me to do it. And so, yeah, yeah. it's, it's difficult, but I think that's really cool. And this idea of self-distancing, I love the, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, the, the talk in third person, recite what you just did as a third person talk like Elmo like this, you know, that kind of thing, or, right. or do a, a, you know, in your head, just visit the future. And what's it going to be like in five years that, oh, well, it's not so big anymore. And you can distance it from time. You can distance it emotionally and distance it in space as well. Let's talk about anticipated regret because this yeah. is a key concept. Um, and it's a key concept that I think has some real power to it. It's this idea that Alfred Nobel, you know, put the Nobel prize up and did all of that because he read a fake, you know, uh, obituary about himself. And he was feeling regret that they were, you know, putting his name out as just this killer of people. And so he regretted that. And thus he was, you know, motivated to change what he his life was about. Yeah, it's a great thing. To, it's a great thing to use this anticipated regret to to fast forward into the future, tell the story of what what my life would be like if I make this decision today. But it only is really good for big things. Don't don't get caught up in using it for every little thing. With the <laughs> you know, should I have uh, that extra Oreo? Don't yeah. You know, well, that, Annie, it will kill you. Annie Duke says, and just making good decisions is like. You know, don't don't fret over having the salmon or the cod for dinner at your restaurant. Just choose one and just go with it because it's not that just big a deal. It. And and we do, right. we, but we have anticipated regret. And sometimes we don't realize that that's what's going on. And that like in the idea when we talked about changing your test answer, right? It's it's yeah. not known. We don't we're not cognitively going. Oh, I'm not. I'm, I won't change this because if I change it, I'll feel worse than if I got it wrong because I didn't change it and all this. So we might have to go and examine our lives and say where are those places that this anticipated regret on these small things is getting in our way, and then setting up a maybe a when then statement. You know when. I feel this, I uh, should change an answer on my test that I've already written. I should, I will change that answer, right? And just, just do that. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Kurt. Uh, 
How about if we just cover uh, regret and agency, this whole free will versus, uh, you know, things happen for a reason? Yeah, and Dan brings this up in the book, and we, I, you know, it's really fascinating to me because he talks about this from the perspective of, um, he asked two questions in the survey. One was, um, do we control our lives? Do we have control, automaticity, right? Um, agency. Agency, yeah. not automaticity. Or do things happen for a reason? And when he asked this question, he got pretty big. Yeah, you know, we control our lives. You know, lots of people said yes, but then lots of people also said, "Do things happen for a reason?" And they said yes. Yes. Yeah. And so they, they he's, said that they, he's yeah. thinking about this, and he talks about this as this idea that that's kind of a, in conflict because if we are in control, but they happen for a reason, then there's this. But I, I, I have a different take on this, which is um, this idea that. You know, when we think about controlling our lives, but when we also think about do things happen for a reason, it goes to this point of do we put meaning to our lives? In other words, you know, is the is it a construct? In other words, this idea that we have an inflection point in our lives that we had this regret, and because of that regret, our lives went one direction as opposed to the trajectory they were on before. And in retrospect, we look at this and say, see, that was a reason for where I am today. And it's not necessarily saying it was prospective, that that regret happened ah, to push uh-huh. me onto that, onto that path, but it's retrospective to say, I had that regret, and because of that, I am now I took a different path. And because and of I'm, that I'm drawing path, meaning and I'm drawing meaning I'll, from that. And so there's, yeah. so that happened for a reason. Only it's the reason that I'm giving it. Yeah. I'm yeah. giving it that reason. It's not saying that there's so, a God or a, a game machiner who's putting these uh, regrets in our lives to, you know, move us down through the maze of life. No, it's this retrospective component. I wonder, I think, I love that perspective, by the way, and I just want to say two things about it. One is I'm wondering, and I'm truly curious as to whether or not people think about this when they answer a question, things happen for a reason, if they're thinking prospectively, if they're thinking that there is this this motion and momentum that led them to this point, uh, some hand of God thing, whatever, um, or if if they are, are conflating it or or fundamentally sort of switching it around when they're actually doing what you're saying is is retrospectively giving it meaning and saying, well, it happened for a reason because I'm giving it a reason yeah. now uh, later in life. And they're just kind of screwing that up. I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I am too. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really good question, but it is an interesting piece. It also gets back to this idea, like this no regret statement that oh. goes out there. And again, yeah. I don't think people when they say, maybe some of them do, like they want to live a life with no regrets. I'm th- that again, that's fanciful thinking, right? We all have regrets yes. as we've talked about, but this idea that I can learn from those regrets that I will then become a better person. And so therefore that regret is no longer a regret because I have taken the bad action that I've done and I have made amends around it and improved myself for a future better life, which again goes to that last paragraph that Dan has that I love this idea that, you know, regret, you know, makes me human regret makes me better and regret gives me hope. And I just love that as an, as a way to think about this. And it's, it's pretty powerful when you think about it. And with that groovers, I want to say thank you. We want to express our gratitude for you hanging in with another, with us for another grooving session for a wonderful conversation with Dan. And, and, and hopefully you didn't regret listening to this entire episode (laughs) and that you got some insightful um, from this. And if you did, please share it with a friend, um, post something about it in social media, uh, get the word out there. Cause one of the things that we will regret is if, if this is only to a small group of people and we want it to go out to lots of people and learn and, and grow from this. So really thank you for listening. And with that, make sure you go out and find your groove this week.